Amen. Good morning. All right, so I want to talk about something that is common, that is universal, that is pretty accepted in Scripture, but I don't know if we fully understand, and that's unbelief. And so I would argue that unbelief is the first sin, and that it's underneath every sin, and also that it's Satan's greatest tool. And so what do I mean by that? Satan is not a creator. He cannot create anything. He doesn't have anything that is, that is of his own. His only tools are to distort and to twist and to challenge and to bring doubt into what God has created. From the very beginning, Satan's most powerful sermon consisted of, did God really say? Did God really mean what you thought he meant? Can you trust the word of God or do you trust your own mind? Satan's greatest tool is to get us to take what God has said and twist it and exalt ourselves, putting ourselves on the throne and taking God off. So that's how unbelief was then, but it still exists. And I would say that unbelief exists under every sin. Let me give you some examples. Greed. When you are greedy or you, you think that money uh, or a job or circumstances will fulfill you, you are essentially saying, I don't believe that God will provide for me. I don't believe that God is good enough to care for me where I am. Jealousy. We look at someone else who has something that we want or we're unhappy. We say, I don't believe that where God has me is good enough. I don't believe that God knows better than I do, so I should have myself over here. I need this for myself anger. I need to take vengeance into my hand because I don't trust God. I don't trust when he says vengeance is mine. I don't trust his judgment. I don't trust his consequences. We can go on and on and on down the list. And we don't realize how many times we do this throughout the day. Believer or not, and we'll address both of those this morning, but how often do we inflict doubt into, into the promises of God. I wonder, if, well, I, I know God said that, but God doesn't know my circumstances. God doesn't know how bad things are right now. God doesn't know where I am. He doesn't care about what I'm going through. And then the reality of the depravity of man, none of us are exempt from this. Since the fall, our primary condition is to harden our hearts toward God. All throughout the scriptures, we see people who doubt and question God. And don't we see it all throughout our lives? Prior to coming to faith, didn't we do that? Don't we have people in our lives who do that? Even in faith, how often do we do that? What I want you to see this morning is that unbelief cannot be remedied by more facts, by evidence, or even arguments. Unbelief is not a matter of lack of information. It is a matter of lack of faith. Because as we're we're going to see this morning, if it were only about more facts or more evidence, they would have believed Jesus. They didn't deny his mighty works. They didn't deny his teaching. If it was only about arguments, if you listen to Jesus teach and still don't believe, that's pretty hard. But yet we still believe that, well, maybe if, we, maybe if I had more evidence, 
more knowledge that I could impart to someone. Maybe if I could craft a better argument, then I could get them to believe. At the core, it is faith, not facts or, or, or evidence. And so it's part of the reason why I'm such a big fan of uh, presuppositional apologetics. If you know apologetics, you, you know the term. If you don't, maybe it sounds like a medical condition. But basically, apologetics is defense of the faith. And then presuppositions are something that you bring to the table. I am presupposing, so before I come to you, I've got a set set of beliefs. And so do you. And so basically, we defend our faith by our faith. And so this is what Scripture says, and this is how we know it to be true. This is Jesus, believe him or not. So when you realize that we have our own set of presuppositions, that we come with a biblical worldview, we, we understand that God put everything into, into order and that sin has marred and cursed everything. And the only answer is Christ and his death and resurrection for your forgiveness of sins in eternal life. Then that is our strongest argument. And we're going to see that in a moment in 1 Corinthians 1 if you want to turn there. But the same thing we do is that we get other people to hold to their arguments because our argument is consistent. Every time, sin leads to Christ. If it doesn't, it leads to chaos. And so what I love about presuppositional apologetics, and I've got to find a short word, what, PSA? Sure. Um, is uh, that you get other people to defend their beliefs. Because if you believe something else, if you believe we came from nothing, or that we will all be reincarnated, or, or whatever your, your belief system is, if you bring it to its logical conclusion, it always leads to chaos. Ten times out of ten. But if you bring our belief to its logical conclusion, it always leads to peace in Christ to those who have faith. But it is a matter of faith, and so we're going to look at their, their unbelief here in a moment. But what I want you to see is this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul addresses people who think that they are wise, addresses the wisdom of the world, and what most of the world would consider folly. Paul's a pretty smart guy. He's a Roman citizen. He's an educated Pharisee. Paul can debate philosophy with the best of the Greeks. Paul can debate Judaism with the best of the Jews. What is Paul's strongest tool? I want you to see this here. So I'm going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who, believe, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul's strongest tool is the word of the cross. No lofty arguments. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, there is certainly a place for, for arguments and evidence. All these things are good because all, all truth will point to the Lord. But our strongest weapon 
is Christ's weakness on the cross for our redemption and his strength and, and might over all of creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. That is, our, that is Paul's strongest weapon and that is our strongest weapon. And so what we're dealing with this morning is people trusting in their own wisdom. And that Christ is, for these Jews in particular, is, he, he has become a stumbling block to them. As, as Paul tells us, they seek these signs, but it becomes a stumbling block. And like most fools, they think that they are wise. Most fools think they're the smartest one in the room and that no one can tell them anything. And this is kind of where we stand. And what you're going to see that's interesting in this, this passage, I'm going to put it up on the screen. If you've been in our, our Bible study, we, we've talked about chiasms. So a chiasm is a structure or a ancient structure in, in literature. There should be a slide for it, Jake. Um, and it basically has parallel points that, that, that point you to a focus in the middle. And so you'll see this on the next slide. So we're going to begin and end with, with teaching. You're going to see doubt and unbelief, a mention of mighty works, a mention of the household. And in the middle, there's this, there's this offense that they take at, at Jesus. No honor that they give to the, the prophet. And this is offense taken. Not offense, as in offense and defense, but it actually becomes offensive. They take the offensive against him in their, in their dishonor. But everything in this passage begins with teaching and is working toward this, this dishonor that they, uh, that they pay him in his hometown. But Jesus goes right back to teaching. It begins and ends with the teaching of the Scriptures. So you can leave that there for a second, Jake. They may need to write it down. Um, and so this morning we have, we have a small text, and, uh, but there are many helpful details about Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. So we're going to bring in a lot of parallel texts, uh, definitely some, some background into what's going on in the Jewish culture, um, and then we're going to address those situations and and then some helpful applications. What do we do with this passage now? Because we don't go to synagogue on Sunday. We didn't see, or, you know, Sabbath, excuse me, Saturday. Uh, we didn't see any of Jesus' miracles. So what does all this mean for us? So that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning recognizing that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts higher than our thoughts. The most elementary principle of your wisdom 
is greater than all of the academics in the world combined. Even the things in the gospel that are folly put to shame every scientist and mathematician on the planet. Lord, forgive us when we trust in human wisdom. Forgive us when we minimize truths that are unchanging, principles that will never pass away. Forgive us when we exalt our own wisdom and our own thinking and pridefully approach you with criticism and scrutiny. Lord, we do not deny knowledge. You are the God of all wisdom and understanding. Anything that is good and right and true will ultimately lead us to you. So we celebrate the disciplines of the sciences and education. But they all submit to you. You are their author. You are their end. Lord, we praise you for the gospel message that is so simple, a child can respond in faith. And so heavy that giants in the faith still fall on their faces before you under its weight. You are a God of greatness, a God of simplicity, a God of awesome power. humble love. We come before you as people saved by grace through faith because of the death and resurrection of our Savior. Let us never grow tired of this message. Let us never look for any other answer to the world's problems but Jesus Christ and Him crucified because it is the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. Lord, we ask that your spirit would teach us, guide us, direct us, and correct us as needed this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, picking up in verse 1, he went away from there. So, we know he's been traveling around Galilee, and he's in Capernaum, and he did some healings in the previous chapter. Now he goes away from there, and he goes to his hometown. So his hometown, Nazareth, uh, where he spent his first 30 years, is about, 20, about a 20-mile walk from Capernaum. And it's, uh, it's southwest from the Sea of Galilee. And this is, there's, this is a little podunk town. Like, there is nothing special about this place at all. Uh, there is nothing mentioned in the Old Testament. There is no uh, writings outside. Like, we don't have, even have historical record. Like, this is, there is nothing special about this town. Less than 500 people. Um, they had a lot of Greek influences. There was a small Jewish population. So, you know, those little small towns like the, with, with the crab in the bucket mentality where everyone knows everyone and they don't want anyone to get out and they, they're, in, they're in everybody's business. I think this is the, the sense that we get when Jesus goes back to Nazareth. It's so bad that when he meets Nathaniel in John chapter 1, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's like, look, we found the Messiah. He comes out of Nazareth. They're like, Bithlow? Nah, nothing good, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And, that's, it, and that's, that's the sense. 
but he still goes home, and he goes home often. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 4 where we see it's his custom to go into the synagogue. But it's not a compliment to be called a Nazarene. Even to this day, that is the mark that jihadists put on Christians for persecution. The Arabic N says, you use a Nazarene, he's a follower of Christ. This has never been a compliment. But even Jesus redeems this, this, this little town that has nothing to speak of of its own. And so that's, that's where he is. He's, he's going back home for Christmas, so to speak. And, uh, you know, you'd think he'd get this, this, this great welcome. We're going to see what kind of welcome he gets. But Jesus' priorities are always in order. What's the first thing he does? On Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. And on the synagogue, verse 2, excuse me, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. I think it's helpful to understand what goes on in the synagogue. So the word synagogue, it means assembly or congregation. It's the people, not the place, similar to our word church. You know, this is a building, but the church is who's sitting in these, these pews. And so he goes to the synagogue, the gathering of the, the Jewish citizens, and, and we've talked about this before, but there's a synagogue in every city where there is a, at least 10 Jews. And so some cities would have multiple synagogues. Uh, and so what would happen would be something similar to what we do on, on Sunday morning. So they would do, they would do prayers, they'd do readings, they would, they would read through uh, the, uh, the uh, Torah, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, once every three years. Uh, and, but they did something different. So there were, there were no hired pastors or, or, or teachers. There, it, was, it was custom for men in the, in the community and even visiting men to, to give exhortations to the body. So this is why it's common for Jesus to do this. They would, they would give a teaching and then ask if anyone has a scripture they would like to read or an, an encouragement for those, for those present. So they kind of have an open mic time in the synagogue, and, and Jesus comes often to do this. And so in the synagogue, they were called houses of, of instruction to the local Jews. And so it was, it was teaching, it was law, but also virtue. So what they, would, what they would do is they would address God's word, what it, what it says uh, in, its, in its principle, then they also put it into its practice. And so this was houses of understanding, but also application. And so when Jesus comes, he's, he's going to give them understanding from Scripture and then what they can do with it. And so we don't know exactly what Jesus' sermon was here, but we do get their response. So let's look at their response. So he, he began to teach meaning there's, there's, an, there's an extended time of, of teaching here. And many who heard him were astonished. Now, what kind of astonished is this? Is this, a good, is this a good astonished? Well, I think their questions after this speak more of astonishment and, and confusion than, than awe and wonder and reverence. Look at this where, what, how. Where did this man, it's not a reverential term, this guy, who do you think you are? This man over here. Where did this man get these things? These things, speaking of the, of the teachings. Like, we know him. Where's this stuff coming from? This is not the Jesus we remember. What is the wisdom given to him? Where, what, and how? How are such mighty works done by his hand? So the first thing I want to talk about is these, these teachings. Where does he get this this wisdom. Now, in their day, much like ours, if you don't go to school or to a reputable college, they don't think that you have anything to, to offer. Okay, well, wh- where's, your, where's your rabbinical pedigree? 
What rabbi did you study under? What seminary did you, did you go to? They know he didn't because for the first 30 years of his life, he worked with his, with his father. So where is this coming from? I think John helps us. And so, like I said, we're going to have a lot of parallels today. So uh, I'm going to stay very close to the Gospels and in the Gospels, but we're going to flip back and forth a bit. Uh, John kind of helps us in this. So if you look at John chapter 7. So when Jesus is teaching in the Feast of the Booths, he's, he, he's in Jerusalem, and he gets a similar reception. So picking up in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They assume that if you have not studied under a rabbi, there's no way you could teach. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? This is shots fired. He knows their, their, their heart, but they're in complete denial. What is their response? They're amazed at his teaching, but as soon as he challenges them, the crowd answered him, you have a demon. I assume this happened often for Jesus. We've seen in Mark, it happens again in, in John, it's in a common claim that you can't know what you know unless it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And so they are, they are challenging his authority, his, his knowledge. So challenging his teaching, but also his works. Look what they say here. How, back in Mark, how are such mighty works done by his hands? This guy. How can he do those things? Remember what Paul said, the Jews seek signs and it becomes a, stu- a stumbling block. They don't refute his mighty works. They don't say those are just rumors. I need to see the tape first. He actually, he actually did them. They acknowledge that he did them. But they question the source. And some people think, still, that, it, well, if they just saw a miracle... That if they just saw Jesus, if they just saw something more convincing than they would believe, people saw Jesus, and they still questioned, and they still doubted, and they still criticized. They saw the miracles, and if they didn't see them, their their neighbors did. You think the uh, grapevine is small on the internet? Imagine a, a, a small town where everyone knows everybody. And Galilee's a small region. If something happens in in Capernaum, it's going to make its way to Nazareth. This is not a lack of evidence. The evidence is standing right in front of them. It's a lack of faith. Because really, who could give better arguments? Who could give better evidence than the one standing in front of them? And yet, they still doubt. There is a hardness of heart that is astonishing as Jesus stands right in front of them. Now, I think it's, as we see the interchange in Mark, I think it's helpful to kind of see this put into practice. So turn to Luke 4. So the first time Jesus goes to Nazareth and goes to preach in the synagogue, Luke records more detail for, for us, and I think it helps bring the, the picture together here. I just want to pick up in verse 14. 
And so the, the, the chronology of Luke's gospel is he gets baptized, the Spirit takes him into the wilderness, and then he, after his 40 days of temptation, he begins his ministry. And his ministry is in the power of the Spirit. There is no more powerful ministry than Jesus preaching in the power of the Spirit. Jesus returned, verse 14, Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. This is not an isolated incident. This is his practice, Sabbath after Sabbath, synagogue after synagogue. And then he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This is what they did. They would hand you a scroll, you would read, you would sit down and teach. You gave, this, is, this is why, by the way, we stand up when we read Scripture. We give reverence and respect to God's Word. And they would sit down and they would subordinate themselves to God's Word. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not... Joseph's son, everything's good right now. They're all marveling at him. They're all glorifying God. Uh, keep your finger there. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So this is what Jesus is doing. This is the, the sense we get. He reads the, he reads the uh, scripture. He explains it. And then they begin to discuss afterward. This is kind of the, the, the common practice. I also want us to turn to Acts 13. We read that earlier in our corporate reading, but I want to bring this all together because we get an even clearer picture of when Paul goes to the synagogue in Acts 13. And so you want to see this, this practice. Where did the apostles begin their ministries? Going to the synagogue the same way that Jesus did. The gospel was first to go to Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. So I want to get into the introduction that we read earlier and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll skip past what we read earlier. As Jonathan said, absolutely, we got a sermon before the sermon. But I, I want us to see the response and what was going on in the Jewish community then. So picking up at the, the second half of verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. These are, these are visitors. They are traveling to a place where they're not known, but they are, they are Jews. Look at the, the practice here. This gives us great insight into what's going on in the synagogue. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, remember last week we looked at the ruler of the synagogue, kind of the administrator who organized it. Again, they did not have hired pastors and and teachers. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. So any Jew, any synagogue, especially someone who had learning, they wouldn't dare stand up if they hadn't had learning. Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He stood up and he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he gives his sermon about everything leading up to Christ. But I want to pick up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him. Listen to how Paul describes what Jesus did. They did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. Even if Jesus wasn't there, by them reading the the, the scriptures, they should be seeing Jesus in the prophets. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witness to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This is the fulfillment to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Sound familiar? Bring us our Hebrew study into picture here. Notice what the apostles do. They preach Christ and him crucified. This is the good news. You killed him. God raised him. This is the news of salvation. Why do you hear me mention the cross and Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection every week? And if I forget, slap me. There is no other good news. It has never been any different. Paul does a masterful job of bringing in all the, 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 the history of Israel. But the culmination of it all is Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. Crucified. Dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, reigning in glory. The same Son that was promised in Psalm 2 is sitting in the right hand of God right now. We're going to pick up later in this because as our drama develops, it parallels the drama here in Acts 13. So one finger in Luke, one finger in Acts. We'll get back there. But back in Mark, they continue their, their, their doubts and their utter uh, excuse me, their, their uh, doubt turns into outright criticism and, and, and dishonor. Now they begin to, to criticize him. So they're doubting his ministry. Now they're, they're doubting him personally. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? So this word for, for, for carpenter, it means general builder, craftsman, tradesman. He, he, he worked with his hands. Wood, stone, could be other things. We don't know exactly what Jesus did, but this is not a compliment. In those days, people stayed in their lanes. If you were a teacher, you taught. If you built, you built. Just shut up and stay over there. But never both. And now he's in his hometown where they saw him building with his father for years. Maybe Jesus made their, their boat. Maybe Jesus helped craft their, their, their home. Now you want to teach us? You with dirt under your, your fingernails? You want to teach us, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the educated men of the synagogue, and you've never had learning? But I love that isn't it fitting that Jesus came as a carpenter, a builder, a tradesman, the same one who created all things, who fashioned the world with his very fingers. In our men's study, we just talked about the, the discipline of work. Our God is a God who works. Jesus is, is, is creative and he is a master craftsman. Of course, he comes to earth and he crafts and builds things with his hand. Just like he crafts us in his image. And when we are born again, he, he recreates us into his image, the image of the new man. He is about creation. He is the creator and the recreator. 
And of course, on earth, he would, he would create. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as a doctor. He didn't come as a scholar. He came as a builder. What he has been doing from the beginning of creation. So just an encouragement here. If you work with your hands, or you think your job is, is uh, not important enough, Jesus came for what was lowly in his, in his society. If you, work with your, if you work with your hands, you reflect your God. Everything you do, even, even in, in, in learning and in, in science and all these other things, everything reflects God. But it's so often in our society, we, we, we've got different tiers, just as they had then. Well, you're not learned. You're not this. You're not, you're not that. So you're, you're, you're second class. If we learn anything from, from Jesus, God redeems everything. There is no, as we, as we uh, challenge our men with, there is no work that does not have value if you do it unto the Lord. And Jesus is a great example of that. So they challenge his, his vocation. They also challenge his family. Notice what they say here. Is this not the son of Mary? And I mean, typically, the custom, as we saw in John, is this not the son of, or no, that, that was Luke. In Luke, is this not the son of Joseph? Typically, the men was, were known by their father. This is, kind of, this is kind of a backhanded insult. Isn't this the son of Mary? And there's all kinds of speculations about this, whether Joseph is still alive or Mary's more well-known. Either way, it was not customary to, for a, a man to be associated with, with, his, with his mother. Another insult. And they add on to that, isn't he the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And so he brings in, like, we know his family. We know this guy. This is not the same person who's teaching. They're challenging everything about him. His work, his teaching, and his miracles, and his, his person. To this day, the challenges to Christianity are always the person or the work of Christ. It has not changed. So we don't know much about his, his brothers and sisters. We, we, we do know that James most likely wrote the book of James in the New Testament, and Judas here is Jude the book in the New Testament. The other brothers we know nothing about. The sisters we know nothing about. But we know that Jesus grew up like most other kids and Mary had other children. Um, this is something that the, the Catholic Church still holds on to. Uh, they, they deny that Jesus had any biological brothers or, or sisters. They, they, just so they can worship Mary. Uh, this is, they, there's, a, there's an eternal virgin doctrine that, that, that Mary uh, was a virgin her whole life that the, the Immaculate Conception, that she was born without sin. And so uh, every reference to Jesus' brothers or sisters, they, they try to explain away that Joseph had children from a previous marriage or something like that. So uh, interesting fun fact for the day. But next time you talk to a Catholic and they, and, and they talk about Mary, uh, it's a great segue to get in there. Um, so they, they challenge his work. They challenge his person, and then what do they do here? And they took offense at him. Now, the sense of this, this word is a word that Mark uses often. It always means a barrier to faith. It literally means to create a stumbling block. And they, so they, they created a stumbling block for themselves by Jesus. They created a stumbling block to their own hearts for Jesus. They took that sort of offense at him. They placed a barrier in front of themselves in Jesus. Now we're going to pick back up in Luke 4. So now we're going to see that continuing. Okay, now what happens? 
as Jesus continues to teach. Everything's good so far. Verse 22, they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. I love how Jesus anticipates their their thoughts, puts words in their mouth, and then holds them accountable to what they haven't even said yet. Physician, heal yourself. We have heard what you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And then he goes on to tell them that, that at the time of Elijah and Elisha, there was only a couple faithful, meaning most of Israel was not faithful. And essentially telling them, I know there's only a couple faithful within Israel, and most of Israel is, is not faithful. So he tells them that, you know, as, as modern readers, we, we, we kind of miss that. But they were enraged. Look at their response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They created a stumbling block for themselves when they heard him. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This is the first time in the synagogue in Nazareth. And it was custom for him to go back again and again. This is not an uncommon thing. The first time they tried to kill him. So Jesus can say he knows that, you, that, that they want to kill him. And we saw that in, in John 7. So this is the heart of the people that he's teaching, and this is why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 4. Now where we get the center of our chiasm. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So this is a common saying in those, those days. That a prophet is not without honor meaning he has honor everywhere else except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Essentially, we know this. We tend to treat the people closest to us the worst. Who sees the ugliest side of you? Your family, those who wake up next to you every day. Who do you put on a good face for? Strangers, people you, you, you don't know. You don't want them to know all of your ugliness. No different with the prophets. There's an old proverb that, that says that um, familiarity breeds contempt. That the more familiar you are with something or someone, the less you, you appreciate it and you begin to hate it. Mark Twain's twist on that was, familiarity breeds contempt and children. <laughs> I thought that was really good. So this familiarity, we've already seen it in his family in chapter 3. His family tells him, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. His family didn't even believe until after the resurrection. This shows you the power of the gospel. Jesus' family, you don't think it ever clicked to them that he never sinned? They heard him teach. His mother saw the first miracle, and they didn't believe until after the resurrection. This is how necessary the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Even his family, who knew him better than anyone else, knew that he didn't sin, knew that his, his teaching was not from earth, and knew that his miracles were amazing, still took the resurrection for them to believe. That is how necessary the resurrection is to believe. But Jesus is not the first prophet to be hated. He condemns the Pharisees. He says, woe to you. You have killed all of the prophets. You and your, your, your ancestors. Prophets were not loved in Israel. Because if you've read any of the prophets, it's not encouraging stuff. It's typically, you've sinned. God's going to destroy you. You better repent. And, and make quick work of it. It is messages of uh, warning and, and correction. This is going to be up on the screen. Uh, here's an example from, from Jeremiah. Jeremiah's 
kind of crying out to the Lord, like, Lord, how long are these sinners going to keep going on sinning? And verse 5 really has nothing to do with the prophet thing. It's just one of my favorite sayings in, in the prophets. Uh, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? This is a great way of, of saying that you think this is hard. These are just people. I'm trying to train you for something better. And if, and if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Jeremiah, it's only getting worse. Jeremiah, man up, strengthen up here. If, if you're looking for comfort, I did not call you as a prophet for comfort. No prophet ever had a comfortable life. And then the next verse kind of brings it, brings it home. Verse 6. For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. The way that Jesus was treated is nothing new. Jeremiah received the same treatment from his father and his brothers. At the end of the day, it is, it is, it's not the prophet themselves. It's, it's unbelief in the message. If they don't believe the message, they will not honor the messenger. And without faith, there is no honor of the word of God or his prophets. And I think it's a time for us to just kind of step back for a moment. Too many pastors, too many teachers want to be honored, want to be liked. And so because I don't want people mad at me, I want everyone to think good things about me, I'm going to soften the message. Instead of preaching Christ and him crucified, because that means he had to die for your sin, he took on God's wrath because you were wicked, well, that kind of offends people. So we're going we're gonna to soften that up. We're going to talk about God's goodness and love, and God is good and God is loving. But you don't understand God's goodness and God's love until you understand your sin. But it doesn't stop with pastors because we have to be careful of that temptation too. How many of us have been tempted when someone asks us about our faith or asks us about the gospel to water it down? Because we know that it might hurt someone's feelings. It might challenge them to know how wicked they are, that the wrath of God remains on them without the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful, too, not to feed into the temptation to please people, to be honored by them, not to offend them. Because there is much more at stake than just being liked. Real quick, I want to look at Matthew chapter 10. Jesus talks about what happens when someone rejects his prophet, his messenger. What is really going on? Because so often, preachers, and every one of us, we can take it personal if someone rejects us, if, if, if we share our faith or they criticize us for our faith. We make it about us. It is not about us. Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you... Speaking to the apostles receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Reception of the, the messenger is reception of the son is reception of the father. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There is a direct correlation between doing good to the messengers of Jesus Christ, that, it, that you do it unto the Son and unto the Father. 
what we do to our brothers and sisters is a reflection of how we view God the Son and God the Father and how people treat the messengers of God the Son and God the Father is a reflection of how they view God. So in our last section here, back in Mark again, we're going to see two things that are remarkable that are attributed to Jesus. He could do no mighty work, and he marveled at their unbelief. So let's deal with the, the first one. And he could do no mighty work. So theologically, and maybe even more emotionally, we have a hard time with this. Jesus couldn't do something? What do you mean he could do no mighty work? He's almighty God. And so this is, this is a field day for a lot of liberal scholars that, that say, well, see, Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. He was completely dependent on, on, on them. That even, there's some things even Jesus couldn't do. But none of the original readers would read it like that. Is it that he's not able? That he's not powerful enough? It's not that he's lacking ability or power. He's lacking willingness and desire. And I think reading Matthew helps to understand this because Matthew wrote after Mark. And so Matthew anticipates the, the, uh, um, the challenge here. So in Matthew chapter 13, writing on the same instances, he adds a very helpful phrase at the end. Matthew 13, verses 57 and 58. And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Not that there was no power in Jesus, but that there was no faith in Nazareth. It's not something lacking in Jesus, it's a lacking in Nazareth. So often we think that Jesus' ministry is just teaching in miracles. Jesus' mighty works only accompany the message. It was to confirm that he was from God. His message was good news unto salvation. The miracles are just a bonus. So when they say he could do no mighty work there, the mighty works accompanied the gospel. They were not the end-all, be-all. He's not a traveling magic man who wants to show you his next amazing deed. But he is the son of God to believe in. How do we know he's the son of God? One, because no one preaches like this. Two, because no one walks on water and multiplies loaves and fishes and brings back withered hands and brings little girls back from the dead and heals people who are diseased. That is the only purpose of his miracles, to show that he is the son of God and to confirm his his message. So if no one's going to believe, what's the point of the miracles? He knows where where, where there's faith. If there's no faith in Nazareth, he's going to move on. He's going to shake the dust off of his sandals. And so he heals a few people. This is the traditional word for heal, the same, it's the root of our word for, for therapy. This is physical healing. Out of compassion, he, fe- he heals some people, but there's, there, there are no faith works going on here because of their state. And it is so much so, the second thing here in verse 6, that he marveled because of their unbelief. And this is a very human response. Mark, more than any gospel writer, gives us Jesus' human emotions and human responses, and he marvels. Notice, Jesus did not marvel that there's a man filled with thousands of demons. Yeah, that makes sense. We're in a fallen world. Jesus did not marvel that a little girl died way before her time. Jesus did not marvel at all these other things, but what is 
more astonishing than anything else is I'm standing in front of you, the Son of God, Emmanuel, in your face, and you still don't believe. That is more astounding than anything else. Hardness of heart in the face of the Savior. But it seems upside down. I mean, shouldn't Jesus' own family believe him first? Shouldn't his own people believe him first? The demon-possessed guy believes. Paul the persecutor believes. But the kingdom of God does not do what we expect it to. Because our, our God is an unconventional God. Our, our God does not give us what we would do. If we were God, everything would make sense in our own eyes. But if you look throughout, throughout Scripture, the promise goes to uh, Jacob and not Esau. The line goes through the terrible house of Judah for the king. The disciples are the least likely candidates to start a new religion. Paul is the least likely messenger to to endorse Jesus, but every time God uses the foolishness of, excuse me, the wisdom of man and makes it foolish in the things of God. He takes what we would do. We would take the smartest, the strongest. We would take Saul. He gives us David so that he gets the glory every time. And so Jesus, he marvels at their unbelief. And we still do the same thing. You ever sat in front of someone and you shared the gospel with them and you're waiting for them to just believe that the light bulb would just go off and you get this blank stare? They're doing the same thing to us that they did to Jesus. It is still the same thing. Like, How could you not get this? How do you not know that I am living water? I am eternal life. The hard and wicked heart of the sinner is dead, fully dead. And then there's one more thing I think is interesting before we get into our application. Oh, I got to pick back up in Acts. Let's do that because this is helpful. Um, so Jesus walks around. Um, he was an itinerant preacher, kind of stayed close to home. He kept on teaching. Why did Jesus keep on teaching? Why did Jesus keep ministering to the Jews who kept rejecting him? Back in Acts, the last part of this interchange brings the synagogue exchange together and brings Jesus' ministry together as well. So picking up in Acts 13, verse 38. Sorry I'm going a little long this morning, but um, hopefully you guys don't have lunch plans. I'll try to make it quick. Um, Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Look at the contrast here. It is belief and freedom versus slavery to the law. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you to. Why do they not believe? Because they were destined not to believe. Even if someone told them. Even if the author of that salvation himself tells them. And then uh, it's interesting to see what happens in the synagogue here. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the beauty of preaching Christ and Him crucified. Continue in the grace of God, and we must urge each other to continue. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews, everything's good until when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. It must go to God's people first. Jesus said, I came for the lost uh, sheep of the house of Israel. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, imagine that. When you continue in unbelief, you're saying, I am unworthy of eternal life. Exactly right. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Gentiles, every one of you, rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. Because of their hard hearts, the gospel came to us. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. God works in their hearts, called the lost, and the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But first, it had to go to the Jews. First, they had to deny him. They had to consider themselves unworthy for eternal life so that salvation could come to us. Only God could think of that plan. Only God could bring about our salvation through the rejection of his own people. And so by our own standards, Jesus had an unsuccessful ministry. Ever think about that? Jesus himself was unsuccessful. More people rejected him than believed him. Jesus taught and the people should listen. This should show us the depth of our depravity, but also should encourage us. Should take a little bit of burden off of us. Because if they weren't converted under Jesus' ministry, there's no way they're going to be. If they don't listen to the voice of the shepherd, they're probably not going to listen to the voice of one of the sheep. And so we take heart in that. So how do we apply this? Uh, one, we should understand that hardness and unbelief still exists. So the person and the work of Christ. That's the root problem. It is hardness and unbelief. So we call people to faith in Jesus Christ. We point him to the resurrected. We point them to the resurrected Christ. It's a spiritual issue. And without faith, godly wisdom is folly. So don't be discouraged. Take heart. And I want you to hear this. Your lack of clarity, your lack of evidence, your lack of argumentation is not the stumbling block. Christ is. So whenever any of you tell me, well, I don't know enough, I must learn more before I show my faith. Do you know Jesus? Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? You know enough. Amen. And also we see here, by their rejection, by their lack of faith, they offend a holy God and they do not see His work. He removes from them. Those who reject them will not see His power, will not see His glory until it is heaped on them in judgment. So again, we should be comforted. And we're rejected and we're shunned for the gospel. Even if it's within our own families. Every one of us as people we love dearly. Who we have 
prayed for, shared the gospel with. If Jesus knows anything, he knows that pain of his mother and his brothers and his sisters criticizing him, saying he's crazy. So take heart, you're not alone in that. Take heart, the, the, the honor doesn't come to those closest to us often, but God does hear the prayers of his people. Jesus, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters that we know of, most of them turned in faith. So keep praying, keep preaching, do not lose heart. Um, we love people enough to tell them the truth. We love people enough not to water down the message. We love people enough that say, this is your only hope. It's the only message for Jesus. It's the only message for the, 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 the apostles. The culture changes, but the message doesn't. Faith still comes by hearing. Hearing still comes through the word of Christ. And when you look in someone's face, it's either going to be folly, and they're going to think you're crazy, or it's the power of God unto salvation, but it is worth the risk. And I also just want to encourage you to guard this in yourselves as well. Because we've been talking about all these things on the outside, but how often do we not believe the promises of God? How often does our belief become our primary motivator? How often do we get critical and and question God? How How often are we preferring the comforts and the sins of this world? Even as believers... But as unbelievers, if you are still here and your heart is hardened, if you are still here and you have not put your faith in Christ, if you are still here and you think you are wiser than God, wake up. You will share the fate of Jesus' hometown friends, the members of the synagogue, his Jew, the Jews, his own people. There is no other hope for you. There is no other message. And bringing it real home, uh, home, this last thing I want to say is we need to examine and root out the unbelief within us. We all know areas where we do not trust God. We all know areas where we are believing lies that God does not love me enough for this. God is not good enough for this, so I must take it into my own hands. And we can say, Lord, we believe a beautiful prayer is to help my unbelief. Let's pray.